Hebrews chapter 12 starts out like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So I don't know if you know this about Hebrews chapter 12, but it comes after Hebrews chapter 11. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And it comes right on the heels of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is what we call what? The hall of faith, right? It's this list of these great men and women from the Old Testament and the amazing things that they did in their lives because of their faith in Jesus. And then we come right to chapter 12 and it says, therefore, since we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Now, this does not mean that all of the people from Hebrews chapter 11 are sitting up in heaven and watching everything that you do and cheering you on. That's not what this is saying. What this saying is this, their lives, what we read in chapter 11, bear witness to us of what God can do through us when we walk in faith. That's what this says. And what can God do through us when we walk in faith? I mean, look back at 1132, because it's just such a cool verse. It says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, did amazing things because of their faith in Jesus, and their lives bear witness to us that we too can do amazing things if we walk out our lives with faith in Jesus. And that's what Hebrews chapter 12 is. Hebrews chapter 12 is going to take our lives and compare it to a race. And it's gonna say this, run to win. Just like the men and women in Hebrews chapter 11 who weren't perfect, who made mistakes, but who ran to win and who accomplished great things through faith. In this race of life, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us we can do the same. And it starts out with verses one and two, which might be some of the most packed verses in the New Testament, in my opinion. You could teach a month of Sundays, literally, on Hebrews 12, verses one and two. But here's what one and two is going to tell us. In this race of life, in our attempt to live out our lives the way Hebrews 11 people lived out their lives, we have three things. We are given a task, we're given an example, and we're given a promise of help. That's what we get in the first two verses. All right, check them out. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? That's a couple of powerful verses right there. 
And the first thing that those verses give us in this attempt for us to run our race well in faith is a task, and it's a great task. You know what the task is? Make it easier on yourself. That's the task. That's what it says. Let us lay aside every weight. The task that we're given is this. Lighten your load. It's a long race. There's a lot of hills. You need endurance. Step one, make it as easy on yourself as possible, right? We all want that. So from the time that I was a high schooler in high school ministry, all the way to the time that I was helping lead high school ministry, one of my favorite trips that we would do every year was the high school boys backpacking trip. I love the high school boys backpacking trip, right? Because I grew up backpacking with my dad and I know the importance of backpacking, man. You gotta carry everything. So you wanna go light, right? You got freeze-dried dinners and lightweight tent and lightweight sleeping bag. But when we do it with like the high school youth group, not everybody grew up backpacking with their dad. So it was awesome to see what people would show up with, right? Like people would come with like canned food. We had a kid bring a bunch of canned food, no can opener, all right? <laughs> I've seen canvas tents. Like, do you know what a canvas tent weighs? Like sub-zero sleeping bags, kids showing up with rubber boots, like five pairs of clothes. I saw a kid, no joke, show up with a propane heater in July <laughs> for a backpack trip. <laughs> right? So you've got those kids Right? They're carrying all these things they don't need to carry and they're weighed down. But then you also had the kids, and this is, a, this is a tradition. So when your kids go, don't tell them. Okay? But the tradition is you gotta pick as a leader the couple of kids who are the strongest, right? The kids who are like bragging about how fast they're gonna hike to the top of the mountain, the football players. And when they're not looking, you fill their bag with rocks. Okay? Brandon Matthews and I put like a 20-pound boulder in the bottom of Bruce, Bruce Mulder's bag one time, and he still beat us to the top of the mountain. Okay, but between the kids carrying the things that they shouldn't have brought in the first place and the kids carrying the rocks, it would take forever to get to wherever we were going to go backpacking, which was perfect because as leaders, that means we could keep up, right? So we, it worked out really well. I think a lot of us are trying to run this race of faith with backpacks full of things that we don't need. We're just weighed down. And what Jesus would say to us tonight is, lay those things aside. Man, some of us have a propane stove and a canvas tent. They're not bad things. Those are good things, but they're weighing you down and they're not helpful. Man, I meet men who are just like career building, career building, career building, and spending all this time on it and all this energy. And it's like, what is that next promotion really going to get you? Race of faith, right? Is it going to help you conquer kingdoms and enforce justice and obtain promises and stop the mouths of lions? Or are you going to get a slightly nicer car, right? Home remodeling. So people get obsessed with remodeling their homes. Are oak cabinets holding you back from your walk of faith? Is that what's going on? 
right? We've got social media. Some of us have relationships that are not bad, but they're, they're not, they're weighing us down. And just like a propane heater on a backpack trip, it's not helpful. And we need to lay them aside. We need to set them down. A great question to ask yourself is this, where do I spend the majority of my time and my money? Money's easy, right? You can make a budget. And budgets are eye-opening, aren't they? Like, I spend that much on what? How many streaming subscriptions do we have? But have you ever made a time budget where you sat down and you made this list of everything you spend time on and how much time it takes you and then stand back and look and be like, okay, am I budgeting my time right? How much of my time am I giving to walk of faith things and how much of my time am I giving to just pointless things? Make a time budget. I remember going to my uncle's house a number of years ago and their kids were all like right in the middle of super kid activities. You know, those ages like eight to 14 when they're just all you are as a chauffeur, right? And they had this giant blackboard in their kitchen and it was just full of stuff. It was like soccer practice and swim meets and hanging out with friends and homework. And I'm like, what is that? And they're like, it's every activity that we're involved in because we're losing our minds and we're sitting down as a family and we're going to erase a bunch of things and decide what's really important because they just weigh us down. That's the first thing. Make it easier on yourself. Don't carry around things that you don't need. But on top of that, also, don't carry around things that you're never supposed to carry around in the first place, like rocks. When you make it to the backpack place and you unpack your tent and it's full of rocks, They're just not even helpful. There's rocks there. You didn't need to bring them with you. And some of us are carrying around things that we were never designed or supposed to carry in the first place, right? I mean, we're called to be God's hands and feet, aren't we? And so God's given us strong backs. He's given us the ability to carry heavy burdens, to care for widows and orphans, and to spread the gospel of hope. Right? He's called us to have awesome marriages and raise godly kids. Like Those are heavy tasks, but we were designed to carry them. But you know what we weren't designed to carry? Anxiety, fear, uncertainty, loneliness. You know what Jesus says? Those are too much for you. Give them to me. It's a backpack full of rocks. It's not helping, it's just weighing you down and you never should have had it in there in the first place. It's designed to be put on Jesus. That's what he says, right? First Peter 5, 7, casting all your cares or anxiety actually is what the ESV says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's a nautical term, you know that? the casting. It's like when a ship was in a storm and was starting to go down. And so you would take all the extra cargo and you would throw it overboard to lighten your ship so you didn't sink. Is that how most of us give our fears and anxieties to the Lord? It's not really, is it? 
At least it's not for me most of the time. Most of the time I do that other Christianese term we have where we say we lay it at Jesus's feet, right? So I've got all these fears, I've got all these anxieties, I've got all these pressures, and so I walk over and I, like, I lay it at Jesus's feet. And I'm like, okay, here you go, Lord. Here you go. And then I walk away and I do this. I don't know if you do this, but I'm like, have you, have you noticed them? You, oh, okay, okay, you're good, right? Okay, you're good, all right. But you, you, haven't, you haven't done anything with them yet, but you saw them? You saw, okay, you saw them, all right, okay, cool. I'm good, I'm good. You know, they're still there. I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna take that anxiety and that fear back with me and I'm, anybody else do that? I'm just gonna go ahead and be worried about that again, even though I said I cast it overboard. Just throw it overboard. That's what 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us. But do you know what the verse before 5, 7 is? 5, 6, there you go. It says this, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting our cares on the Lord takes humility. It takes us standing back and saying, I can't handle that. I can't carry that. It's too heavy for me. I'm going to give it to you and I'm going to walk away. And I'm going to trust you that you are a good father and you'll never let us down. And I get to give it to you. That's the first thing we're told. If we're gonna run this race to win in faith, we've gotta make it a little easier on ourselves because most of us are making this harder than it's supposed to be. We got a backpack full of things that we don't need and we're carrying around things we were never supposed to carry around in the first place. Lay them down, just lay them down. So it says first, we cast aside or lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. I love how just black and white the author of Hebrews is about sin. He's like, sin, just get rid of it. If you're wondering what to do about the sin in your life, just, just get rid of it. Just cast it aside. It's not helping. I don't know if you thought it was helping. It's not helping. All right, that coping mechanism is not helping. Just get rid of it. He says it's that simple. And some of us, I think, when it comes to sin and sins that cling so closely to us, we've bought into the self-help 21st century postmodernism books and there you've got to think your way through it and talk. Not that's, that's bad, but there's a certain time where we just go, that's it, I'm done. I'm just leaving it by the side of the road and moving on. It's what we're called to do. Lay it aside and make it easier on ourselves. So we're given a task, but we're also given an example. In case you're wondering how to walk out this task, he gives us an example. What does he say? Verse two, looking unto Jesus. The phrase here is so cool. It doesn't just mean look at Jesus. What the phrase here means is forcing yourself to look away from other things and look unto Jesus. Forcing yourself with effort to look away from other things and look unto Jesus. 
Because when I get my eyes off of Jesus and I start looking at all the other things around me, I just yard sale. Okay? Do you know a yard sale term? All right, so a number of years ago, I'm not a, I'm not a moto sports person. In fact, I'm turning 40 this year and my new life rule is this. If it requires a helmet, I'm out, okay? Hey, you'll need a helmet for this. I'm okay, I'll go fishing. Okay, I've never needed a helmet to go fly fishing. Just hasn't happened. Goggles occasionally, depending on who you're with. Um, if you're a fisherman, that joke will make sense. <laughs> All right, but I'm, I'm trying, I was, so not a motocross person, sorry, I got distracted. I'm not a motocross person. So a number of years ago, I am at my uncle's house and he's super into motorcycles. He's got these tracks all over and dirt bikes. And I'm like, that looks fun. I wanna try that, okay? Pre-helmet rule. So I get a helmet on and I would just, I would be coming along and I would see a, a ditch or a tree or a root or a gully and I would just, and then I would just yard sale, okay? Yard sale is this, it, it's a sporting term. It comes, I think, from downhill skiing first, and it's when you wreck, and then you just spread yourself and your gear out in all directions, okay? So downhill skiing, it's easy to do. You wreck, and you've got like a pole over there, and your goggles are back up there, and one of your skis is headed to South America, right? It's a yard sale, okay? So I am, I am working on motocross riding, and I am just yard sailing. I'm just, right? And then when you start to fall in a ditch and you slip like this, what does this do on a motorcycle, right? So then the bike would just shoot up out from underneath me and yard sail, right? Gloves and goggles and hats, and it was horrible. I'm like, this is not fun. I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And he's like, you've got to keep your eyes way down the trail. I'm like, I can't get my eyes way down the trail, dude. Like, there is literally a goalie here and then a tiny little track that I have to hit to go around it. I'm, I have to look at that, or I'm gonna go in the goalie. And he goes, if you have your eyes down the trail and you go in the goalie, it's not gonna matter. The bike will go right back out the other side of it. I'm like, what? You were lying to me. So, <laughs> well, I'm gonna try it, right? So I start riding it, and I'm keeping my eyes focused. And sure enough, man, it, you, if you look down the trail and you come up to a tree, the bike just goes over the tree. Right? And you get in a goalie and you just keep your eyes like this and you, you're coming out of the goalie. Right? And I would do good for a while and then it'd be like, well, that's a really big tree. Uh, yard sale. That's my walk with Jesus. It totally is. When I keep my eyes on him and I force myself to look away from all the other distractions, I do fine. And even when we slip into a trial or a trouble or a ditch or there's a tree or there's a root, man, I just look there and it's just, we just keep going. But when I start looking down, oh, did Kate Brown, Kate Brown, yard sale. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's a vaccine, it's a vaccine, it's a yard sale. It just, and we're just everywhere. Forcing ourselves to look away from everything else and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He's our example. And I notice a few things when I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. You know, the first thing I notice is this. He lived differently than I do. He lived lightly. If you want to talk about casting aside unnecessary things, man, Jesus lived lightly, didn't he? People, not possessions. What was one of Jesus's number one priorities? Time with his father, 
Like you read the gospels, no matter how tired Jesus is, no matter what is going on, he sets aside time to spend in fellowship with his father, a willingness to be interrupted, a mission to call out injustice. One of my favorite quotes that I read this year was this. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And he lived differently than I do. And it's really important for me to start looking at that. We're called to be Christians. Little Christ, walk like Jesus walked. And we study him and we learn about it and we go, you know, he would, remember the old the WWJD bracelets? That's literally, that's what that means. What would Jesus do here? Well, maybe he wouldn't think this was important as I think it is. He'd keep his eyes fixed on his father. I know that for sure. That's the first thing I notice when I look at Jesus. But there's something else that I notice when I look at Jesus and it encourages me. Well, everything encourages me when I look at Jesus, but I liked this one. Not everything to Jesus was pleasant. Right? Like he wasn't like, everything is great. It's all good. It's, everything's good. Like, what does it say here? It says that he endured the cross and despised the shame. Jesus was like, I despise that. That thing that I'm gonna have to go through, I'll do it for you, for the joy that's set before me, but I despise it. I hate this. And I think that's okay for us to say from time to time. We don't have to be everything's good, happy-go-lucky Christians. We can be filled with joy, but we can also go, you know what? I hate this. I hate this. And I think that's important because that's what inspires me to act. I hate when I see kids taken advantage of. That inspires me to act. I hate when I see people not able to meet together at church. And so we're acting like it's okay to not think everything's okay. Jesus didn't. He despised that. That encourages me. And the third thing that I see when I look on Jesus is this. He had his eyes fixed on something else, right? What's it say? Looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. You know what that joy was? Taking you and me to heaven to meet his dad. That is to me one of the most profound statements in the entire Bible. That when Jesus hung on the cross and he was like, this is going to be awful. Like I am going to hate this, but I'll do it because I love Heather or Roman or David so much that I can't wait to bring them to heaven and introduce them to my father. He kept his eyes fixed on something else too. If Jesus had to keep his eyes fixed on something else, how much more do we have to keep our eyes fixed on other things? Keep our eyes fixed, purposefully looking away, right? So we got to lighten our load. We've got our example. But finally, because this is hard, we get a promise of help. Because here's what it says. Looking unto Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. This walk of faith, this race that we're on, Jesus invented it. He designed you for it. He designed us for it. He knows how it works. And not only that, he says he's gonna be the one responsible for making it perfect. 
In Genesis chapter two, God makes all of his creation, it might be the end of Genesis chapter one. I should have looked that up. Um, but God gets in with all of his creation. He looks at Adam and what does he say? It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper for him, right? And he creates Eve. That word helper, from then on out, the rest of the Old Testament, it is used to describe God. Every time after that, that there is a helper, it is used to describe God and how he helps us. Because God would look down at me today and he'd be like, James, you can't do it on your own. I'm your helper. I'll be your perfecter. There's some great verses about this because it comes up over and over and over again in scripture. 1 John 4.12 tells us this. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 2 Corinthians 12.9, my grace is sufficient for you my power is made perfect in your weakness. I offer my weakness, he offers his perfection. That's a good trade. Hebrews 10, 14, for a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I love kids' song theology because it just cuts straight to the point of it, right? And my kids have got some great Christian song CDs. Um, they've got these uh, Salty, the singing songbook songs. Did any of you guys grow up on those? If you have kids or grandkids, do yourself a favor, or not, depending on how you land on that. Buy them, your kids will love them. But there's this great one, and it's actually about a bunch of kids on a backpacking trip. And they're whining because it's hard and it's heavy. And the chorus of the, of the verse is this. With Jesus and determination, I can do my best. Do my best. With Jesus as my strength, I'll do my best. He'll do the rest. That's what this verse says. I do my best. He does the rest. I don't have to be a perfect father to my three kids. I just do my best. He does the rest. I don't have to be a perfect husband. I do my best. He does the rest. Now, the best requires effort, right? Because this actually first hit me. I was uh, a week ago, I was really trying to put this message together, and it was not happening. It was just not coming together, all right? I was like, I do not know how I'm going to teach this thing. And this jumped out at me, and Jesus was like, you just do your best, and I'll do the rest. So when I'm preparing a teaching, I try to get up a little bit earlier in the morning and prepare it in the morning because I just, I can't study like this in the evening with the kids running around and they want to play and I got to be dad and that's awesome. I love that. And then by the time they get down, I'm like, I'm going to bed, <laughs> right? <laughs> no profound thoughts are going to happen now. So since I had that thought, my alarm would go off early in the morning and I would wake up and I'd be like, I want to hit snooze. And I'm like, that's not my best. My best is to get up and study, and that's all I'm responsible for. That's it. I just need to get up and study, and he'll do the rest. It's so encouraging to me. Edgewater, do your best. 
God's got the rest. He does. He's got the rest. And no matter what it is, he can handle it. That's what the next three verses say, or two verses actually, right? We're gonna move out of those first two verses. We move to verse three or four. First three or four says, dude, no matter what it is, he can handle it. It says this, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against, you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What this says is no matter what you're going through, Jesus went through worse. And he went through it perfectly. And he'll see you through it perfectly if we'll partner with him and we'll do our best. Right? Amen. We could, just, we could be done. There's a lot of extra verses though. We'll, we'll do a few more things. All right. So we make things easier on ourselves. We keep our eyes on our example and we get help. But I still don't get that right all the time. I don't know about you, but I still am like, yeah, I don't always do my best, all right? Sometimes I don't even do my medium. And God says, okay, that's fine. I'll correct you. I can also be a God of correction, and I will correct you and train you. And the next verses, we're gonna go from verse seven all the way down through verse 11. And it's all about, actually verse five, all the way down through verse 11. It's all about how God disciplines us and trains us. And he disciplines us when we're doing wrong, but he also disciplines and trains us when he wants to perfect us. Because I pray that next year, my best is better than it was this year. And the year after that, my best is better than it was the year before. So God is both correcting me through discipline and he is training me through discipline. And there is this list here. There's six things that the author tells us about God's correction. Here they are. First, it's because he loves you. And second, it's because you're his son or daughter. Verse five, check it out. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son who he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. It's an old book. <laughs> Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? First things he says is this. It's because I love you and you're my kids. That's why I'm disciplining you. Next, he says, it's for your good and for your holiness, right? Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time, speaking of our earthly fathers, as it seems best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. He also wants us to know that it's not always pleasant, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those 
who have been trained by it. It yields righteousness. God disciplines us because he loves us, because we're his kids, because it's for our good so that we can share in his holiness. And even though it's painful, it yields righteousness. That's what it says. Which then begs the question, how does God discipline us? And I think he does it in a couple ways. One way that God does it is he'll use our circumstances. There's a great story about this in the Bible. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 30. I'm gonna paraphrase. But it's David and Ziklag. So David and his boys have been out in the Philistine area doing their thing. This is before David has become king. And they come back to Ziklag, which is where their camp was. And while they were gone, raiders came in. And the raiders stole all of their possessions and they stole their wives and their children. And it says that the men came back and were greatly distraught, as you would be. And it says that they thought of stoning David. And then it says this. It says, and David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. It is the first time that it says that about David. And from that point on, that becomes the mark of David's life. When he's going through difficult things, he will strengthen himself in the Lord his God. It's only three chapters after this that David becomes king. He may not have been ready to be king until he learned to strengthen himself in the Lord his God. So, did God cause Ziklag? I have no idea. That's like so high above my pay grade. But here's what I know. God used it. God used it. When God says in Romans that he'll work all things together for good to those who love him, what he means is this. No matter what you're going through, whatever difficulty it is, whether it was him causing it to discipline you, he doesn't punish us, but maybe he's just letting us go through it, or it was our own stupid mistake, or someone else's sin, I've run into all three of those. God wants to use it to discipline and perfect me because he loves me and I'm his kid. So no matter what trial we're going through, God wants to use it to discipline us and correct us. And when we find ourselves in a difficult situation, no matter what it is, we stand back and we go, okay, Lord, first off, how much of this is my fault? Okay, because I normally have a decent percentage. All right, train that out of me, Lord. We need to do that better next time. Teach me through that. But then even if it's not my fault, even if it's completely outside of my control, he still wants to train me through it. He still wants to perfect me through it because he's my dad and he loves me and he'll discipline and train me. But not only will he use circumstances, more often, most often, all the time, he uses this right here. This right here, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. And then look at the next four, three, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We got all this weight on teaching. It's 25% of the equation here. The other three are corrective. Reproof, correction, and training. You see that? That's what this book is for. I was actually sitting studying this and my, little, my three-year-old son comes up to me and he's like, Daddy, what are you reading? And I'm like, I'm reading my Bible. And he's like, why? I was like, it's an excellent question. 
It's a great question. What am I reading it for? Am I reading it for reproof and correction and training? Because it's available to me every time I walk in these doors and I hear the word taught, every time I open it up at home, every time I meditate on it throughout the day, it's available for me for correction and training and discipline. And I need it. And it's so great. Because the thing about being disciplined by the Lord is this. It means he has hope for us. That's what discipline means. It means he has hope for us. Okay, so my freshman year in high school, I tried out for the basketball team, okay? And I was literally like four foot, 11 and a half inches, right? I would tell you I was five foot, but it was a lie. Like 90 pounds soaking wet, right? Not a basketball player, okay? But I was enthusiastic, so I show up at tryouts, man, and I'm trying my hardest, right? And I remember the second day of tryouts, the coach is out there, and we're all doing a scrimmage, and he's calling out correction, right? And he's like, Delif, watch your dribble over there. Sorensen, pick up that ball. Lathrop, that was a sloppy pass. Dennis, nothing. You know why? No hope. No hope. God corrects you because he has hope for you. He knows you can make the team. You're on the team. He knows you can do better and better and better. And as your perfecter, he has hope in you. When you find yourself corrected by the Lord, when you walk through these doors and something is set up here and it just cuts you, that's because God has hope for you. And he wants to build you up out of it. It's a beautiful thing. Okay, so now our author goes through this. All right, so we've, we've gotten... We've gotten this idea that we, to run this thing out, we've got to lighten our load and keep our eyes on Jesus and get help and receive discipline. And now he really like launches into what I call like the cheerleader section, okay? So check this out. This is where we go with verses 12. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holy list without which no one has seen the Lord. Do you see this? He's like, go, go, go. Lift up your hands and strengthen your knees and make your paths straight and be healed and strive for peace and strive for holiness and obtain grace and go, go, go. Because we need that sometimes, don't we? Go, guys. This, this is all available to us. What is this lift up your hands and strengthen your knees and make straight paths? That's the image of a runner crossing the finish line, isn't it? Yeah, I won. Because that is the eventuality for every follower of Jesus. You can cross the finish line with your hands raised. So be encouraged today. As the cheerleader here would say, that's what's coming for you. And then he goes into this interesting little section about Esau. Esau, like Genesis, Jacob, and Esau, Esau, right? Check it out. Here's what he says. It's so interesting. He says, see to it that no root of bitterness spring up. This is halfway through verse 15. And causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected and found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What does Esau have to do with this? Okay, follow me here, because it's super interesting. Esau 
rejected his birthright, but wanted his blessing. Because they're different. And Esau didn't understand that. Okay, so here's the story of Esau. This is Abraham, Isaac, Isaac and his wife, Jacob. Uh, Isaac and his wife, dear goodness. Isaac's wife was Rachel. And she was pregnant. And something was going on in there. There was like a battle inside her womb, and there was fighting going on. And there's this prophecy given. And the prophecy is, hey, there are two babies inside of you. Both will become great nations, but the older will serve the younger. Okay, now they're born. And now you have Jacob and Esau. And then at the end of that, it says that his mother loved Jacob, but Esau was a man of the field. So we already know, like, we've got a weird family dynamic going on, okay? So fast forward a number of years. Jacob is hanging out in the tent. He's cooking up a meal. And Esau comes in from a long backpack trip, okay? Backpacking is the theme of our evening. And he's tired, and he's hungry. And he's like, that smells good, Jacob. Give me some. Jacob's like, give me your birthright. Esau's like, what good is my birthright? If I die of starvation, fine. You can have my birthright. Give me some stew. And it says he ate his stew. And then at the end of that, it says Esau despised his birthright. Here was his birthright. Esau's birthright was the right to inherit his father's place as the head of the family. It was really his responsibilities in life that had been placed on him as the firstborn. When his dad passed, his birthright was to take over. It was going to be his responsibility to care for his mother, to care for the flocks, to care for the servants, to run the household, to be in charge. His birthright was the responsibilities that had been set in front of him as a man taking over the head of the family. And he despised it. Why? I don't know. Maybe because he knew even if he did all those responsibilities, he was going to still serve his younger brother because I guarantee you he knew this prophecy. Maybe he just didn't like the lot he'd been given. I'm out in the fields, I'm working, I'm hunting, Jacob's just hanging out. I want his birthright. I want him to have what he has. But it says that he despised the responsibilities that had been placed in front of him by God. And then it says that at the end of his life, he tries to get his blessing, Hebrews 12, and he couldn't get his blessing. Now, we know Jacob stole it, but they're tied together. Hebrews here ties them together. And what it says is this, his blessings, this is so important, men especially, our blessings are tied to our birthrights, the responsibilities that God has given us. Women too, the responsibilities that God has given you, we each have been given important responsibilities to raise kids and be in godly marriages and take care of those less fortunate and to work hard and to do our best. Our blessings are tied to our responsibilities. And so many of us don't want our responsibilities, but we still want our blessings. Or we think we want someone else's responsibilities. I want his life. I want his job. It looks so much easier. I want his family. They look like they're so much nicer to him. Your blessings, your blessings are tied to your responsibilities. And what God has put in front of us and called us to do, it is when we walk those things out faithfully and with responsibility and taking charge of them the way he's called us to, that we find 
blessings. You can't have someone else's race, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were called to go through the fire. Daniel was called to go through the lions. It wasn't the other way around. We're each called to the things that God has put in front of us. And when we walk those things out correctly, not wanting other things and not shirking our responsibilities, that's where the blessings come in. As we lead our households, as we raise our kids, as we serve our spouses, that's where the blessings are inside the responsibilities. That's the lesson of Esau. Okay, and then we end this chapter with a hope sandwich, okay? Do you guys know what a compliment sandwich is? Compliment sandwich is when you have to give someone like a bad piece of information or some constructive criticism. So you say something nice about them, and then you say whatever mean thing you wanted to say, and then you say a nice thing again, okay? Compliment sandwich. This chapter ends with a hope sandwich. Verses 18, 18 through 24, we're going to get hope. Verses 25, a very severe warning. And this is verses 26 through 29, hope again. Hope sandwich. Here it goes. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is all referencing Mount Sinai. Saying, hey, Mount Sinai isn't the destination. The destination is, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for justice. Jesus's blood cries out grace and mercy. This is our destination, Mount Zion, feasting with all of the saints made perfect and the angels in the heavenly assembly. That's our hope. That's why it's worth running this race and enduring hope. Keep our eyes fixed on where we're going. And then a warning, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Man, they couldn't even escape on Mount Sinai when they were warned from earth. Do not reject the message of Jesus from heaven. Don't reject him. It's a dire warning. And then we get hope again. See that you do not refuse him. Uh, 26. At that time, his voice shook, speaking of Mount Sinai, the earth but now he has promised, yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may 
remain. He is going to shake the things that have been made so that that which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's all gonna burn. And you and I, when we've run this race of faith, and we've run it well, and we've made mistakes, no doubt, but we've received discipline, and we've made our efforts to lighten our load and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and we've gotten help after help after help because he is our perfecter. When we take those responsibilities that he's put in front of us and we do our best, when it all burns, we will stand in heaven together and we'll feast forevermore. That's the hope that this chapter ends with, amen? Father, I thank you for Hebrews 12. What a great chapter. What a phenomenal hope. That everything on this earth that I look at and say, I despise that. It's gonna burn away and we'll be left with each other and with you in heaven and paradise together. I thank you for that. Help me to keep my eyes fixed on that when I wanna fix them on every obstacle in my path. Help me to receive your correction and discipline. Thank you that you have hope for me as your son, that you have hope for us as your children. Be our father, perfect us. In Jesus' name, amen.